pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. During the current conditions of the coronavirus and social distancing, uh, my wife Susan and I have had to find some alternative ways to entertain ourselves. So um, Netflix popped up on the radar, and we're not big movie watchers, but anyway, watching a lot of Netflix movies, we've noticed that there's a lot of killing and shooting and dying going on in many of these movies. And it seems like the producers love to zoom in on someone who is dying and capture their last words. Have you ever thought what your last words may be? I would imagine that your last words will be predicated on whom you're with at that time. For example, John Lennon, who was uh, one of, to me one of the greatest songwriters ever and a peace activist, was shot on the doorstep of his apartment building. And his last words were to a bystander, I've been shot. And it's very tragic and ironic, especially since he was a peace activist. And then you had P.T. Barnum, the world's greatest showman, who, as he was dying, was with his wife, Helen. And his last words were, Helen, my last thoughts will be of you. And that's very sweet, but tragic as well. On the cross, Jesus, as he was dying, as he gave up his spirit and announced and proclaimed that it is all finished, said two words. He said, I thirst. Something big is happening here. We can't gloss over this when we read it. So let's go to scripture. If you have your Bible, open it to John chapter 19, verse 28. If you have your phone app, let's open that up. There's Bibles at the end of the rows. Uh, please uh, use that. And feel free to take that home with you. John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all is now finished, said, in parentheses, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. So we see a picture of God on the cross dying his last day here on earth. And what does he say? I thirst. It just seems a bit odd. Why would he not say, I can't breathe, or I hurt, or someone get me down from here? He doesn't. He says, I thirst. And John, the writer of this epistle, makes note of this and puts it in our Bible and puts it in red. You see, throughout the Bible, whenever Jesus spoke, the writers quoted him, and this went into the Bible in red print. Jesus never engaged in idle chit-chat. What he said was very important. So we need to take our time when we read these words, highlighted in red, and see precisely what is Jesus saying to us. Remember, he once told us in the Bible that many of the things that he says won't penetrate some people's ears, that some people won't see it. Only those that have eyes and ears for this will understand it. So when we see this, we need to take our time and not gloss over these things. So what do you think of when you, when you think of the word thirst? We probably think of water. Here in Florida, we know that it doesn't take long for us to go out into the heat of an August day, the humidity, whether we're walking or playing or working, uh, we're gonna get hot, we're gonna get dehydrated, and we're gonna ask for water. We're gonna be very thirsty. Did you know that water appears in the Bible, the word water, over 700 times? Water is extremely prevalent 
in the Bible. It's prevalent in God's word. It's also very powerful. If you have a well back in those days on your property, people would have to come into your area and onto your property for a very valuable resource to get water, and this gave you power. You see, water is also used in the Bible as a symbol, a simile, and a metaphor. Here's a few examples from Adam all the way through Jesus' time of water. Water is used as drinking water, as flooding water, as parting of water, walk on water, baptism water, water to wine, eternal water, you have living water. I think you get the idea. There's a lot of mention of water in the Bible. So not only is water mentioned hundreds of times in the Bible, but it plays a very important role in God's design for us as his creation and also God's plan for saving us. Water's prescriptive in three ways. It's prescriptive in creation, in our cleansing, and in our salvation. So let's look at those. We're going to take a quick walk through the Bible, Genesis all the way through Revelation. Water used as an agent in creation. We see in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, God immediately introduces us to the Holy Spirit, verse 2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So here God's using water to introduce us to the third person of a triune God during creation. Then in Genesis, same chapter 1, verse 20, we read, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creatures that hath life. Here, God's introducing us to life. Again, water is an agent for creation. This thought is repeated in the New Testament in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews, and he wanted to know. He was asking Jesus, how do I, how do I get into this kingdom that you talk about? And Jesus said to him, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, there's two trains of thought from the theologians out there on this. Some see this as born of water and born of spirit, two different things, water being the physical, the worldly, and spirit being the spiritual. And then there's others that put these together, water and spirit in baptism. If they are separate, we see this water here, when a woman is pregnant, um, the baby is covered with amniotic fluid, and when she's about to give birth, her water breaks, and the baby is protected by this water. In the spiritual, in baptism, we see that the Holy Spirit does the same, that the Holy Spirit protects us. In both instances, we come up out of the water with a new breath of air as a new creation. And then number two, we just saw water is an agent for creation. Number two, water is an agent to cleanse. A major cleansing took place back in Genesis chapter 6. This is the story of Noah and his ark. You see, God wanted to cleanse the earth of all Noah's evil contemporaries. And he used flooding to do this. And he also wanted to use Noah's family to perpetuate the human race. 
And that wasn't the end of the story here. You see, God made a covenant with us. He signed and sealed this covenant, saying that this will never happen again. And the symbol of the covenant we see today, it's a rainbow. And how is a rainbow made? When sunlight penetrates drops of water. Then in Exodus chapter 30, 18, we read of the priests. Before they would go into the tabernacle, they would always wash their hands and their feet. And the Bible tells us that they did this so they would not die. They needed to be cleansed and they needed to be purified. And then in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.26, we see a metaphorical use of water. This is water concerning the church. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And ultimately, we see this in the book of John chapter 13. This is where Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. This is an absolute beautiful picture that Jesus gives us of how we are to be humble and how we are to be servants. But it didn't end just there. He was foretelling of what he would do on the cross and the washing of our sins. Number three, water is an agent for salvation. Again, we're going to look back into Genesis chapter two. We read of the perfect conditions of the Garden of Eden where a stream ran through it. This stream was very important because not only was it calm and beautiful, but it it was necessary for life for the plants and the animals and the humans that live there. It's also a beautiful picture of what Christ gives to his children, our salvation, our rescue. So listen to these following verses. I've listed a few here. And see if you can link the references between water and salvation. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2 through 3. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust, I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Jeremiah 2, 2 verse 13, for my people have committed two evils, they have forsaken me. Remember this word forsaken, it will come up again, meaning they have turned away from me the fountains of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, cisterns that are broken and can hold no water. So this is what we do. We turn away from the living water, and we want to hold the water in our hands, only for it to run through our fingers. John 4.14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Here we're introduced to the word thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternity. We receive the water, and the water flows through us. This is the Great Commission. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. I baptize you with water. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, where we are here, had passed away, and there was no more sea. Now, when they talk about sea here, they talk about it as a simile to crashing waves, rough water, and we see a lot of that in the Bible. Now, the new heaven and the new earth, that's our ultimate goal. That's where we want to end up someday. That's what we pray for. We pray for that in our Lord's Prayer. 
there will be water. It'll be eternal water, and it'll be peaceful, and it'll be pure, and it'll be perfect. And then lastly in the Bible, Revelation 22:17, the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take of the water of life without price. Without price. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let's look at the who, what, where's, and when's of this. Who is thirsty? We read about a beautiful story that's narrated by Christ. It's in the book of John also, chapter 4. Jesus is traveling and he meets a Samaritan woman. And he offers her living water. And what does she say? But you don't have a bucket. That's us. That's me. I want God's bucket. And I want what's in God's bucket. He's offering me something eternal, but I want that bucket. There's so much more to this story, though. You see, Jesus was traveling from Judea to Galilee. And he was going through Samaria. Him and the disciples got very thirsty and hungry, so they stopped at Jacob's well. We, we heard um, Pastor David talk about Jacob's well. He's been going through Genesis. At this well, Jesus sends all his disciples into town to gather food. And it's, it's the middle of the day. It's hot. That's normally when most people wouldn't go to the well. Um, but this, a Samaritan woman came, and it was just her and Jesus. Now, this was not a normal layover for a Jew. You see, the Jews saw Samaritans as unclean. They were people to avoid at all costs. You see, they were unmarried, intermarried, religiously heretical, racial half-breeds, and political rebels. These were, let's walk on the other side of the street type of people. Doesn't that sound familiar, and doesn't that sound current? Yet Jesus who was thirsting from this hot human track, he stops and he meets the woman at the well. And this woman at the well is also an adulteress. You see, Jesus knows everything about her, just like he knows everything about us. He knows that she had been married numerous times and that she was now living with a man that she was not married with to. Yet, Jesus meets with her and engages with her purposely, graciously, and with no prejudice. In 1975, I went to college. I went to college in Pennsylvania. I had an athletic scholarship. Most of my teammates were of different color, different backgrounds, different religions. We traveled together, we roomed together, ate together, drank together. We shared in each other's victories, and we shared in each other's defeats, and we also shared in each other's personal stories. After graduation, I moved back to Florida to Ocala where my parents were living, and I got a, I got a job at a feed store. I had a three-month layover before my career with the federal government, a career that would span 37 years would begin. So for these three months, I needed some money. My first day at the feed store, I walk in and I see two water fountains. One of them is marked colored, and the other one is marked white. And then I find out that there's two bathrooms. There's a bathroom on the sales floor for white people, 
and the bathroom in the back where they loaded out the feed was for the black people. How did this happen? I mean, think about this. They built this building and purposely designed it. Extra money for two sets of plumbing for water fountains, for two sets of plumbing for bathrooms. Now let's keep that in mind, and we're going to leap way back in time, thousands of years, to Jesus. It's not 1979 anymore, and it was crazy prejudice and anger back then. And Jesus stops at the colored water fountain. And not only does he engage with a woman about drinking water, but he also wants to share her bucket. Even today, this would seem radical. That's our gracious Savior, one that we are to follow, to emulate, one that we are to pray to the Holy Spirit, to soften our hearts, to rid us of pride, to rid us of hate, and to rid us of prejudice. Truly, to be saved by grace, we are to reflect the nature of Jesus. This is what the Bible tells us, reflect the nature of Jesus. Yet our view is distorted. We see the glory of the truth of the Son of Man and what he's offering, but we remain thirsty for something different, something of this world. We're blinded by a culture for physical thirst. We have a bucket list. We make things, put it on the list. As we do them, we add more things to the bucket list. We're never satisfied. I mean, have you ever sat back and thought, yep, I've done everything I've ever wanted to do, and I've bought everything I ever wanted to do. We don't do that because we, our taste, our thirst, is never satisfied in this world. We're always adding to our bucket. So we're going to go through the, the who, what, whys of the living water. So who is offering? So we're the ones at the well, and Christ is offering the water of life. He's offering it to a woeful society, to a world that seems more and more turbulent, turbulent like the seas, like the seas that Jonah was thrown in when the sailors threw him overboard to save their ship, and he was just to be swallowed by a whale. The world is turbulent like the seas that the disciples engaged in when they were in their boat, and Jesus came to them and calmed those seas. Yes, Jesus says that we are people living in a woeful world, in bleak conditions, in unsettling seas. If you don't believe this, watch 30 minutes of TV tonight. You'll see disease, social injustice. You'll see political divide, economic struggles. We are living in a woeful world. Yet God only knows that this broken and woeful world will only make the living waters taste that much sweeter. So what is he offering? Again, Jesus is offering something not of this world. He's offering us salvation, rescuing us from those seas of calamity. Yet inherently, we think we can save ourselves. We have a stumbling block. We want the bucket, just like the woman at the well. Our thoughts are predicated on a cultural worldview that's permeated and saturated by 21st century Western ideology. 
We can't get away from it. We want a piece of creation. That's what we're told. Get a piece of creation. Or maybe we want a piece of the creator. We want a piece of heaven. We want, we want heaven, not hell. We want a room in his house. Yet Jesus is trying to tell us that his father wants only our heart. He wants a relationship like a father and a son. He wants us only the thirst for him. And he's offering this because he knows we can't save ourselves. He knows that we're spiritually dead. But he's offering this free gift of salvation. And it's so simple, but we complicate matters. He's telling us, you don't need that bucket. You don't need that stairway to heaven. You don't need to work out your salvation. Just simply accept the water. Jesus came here, walked with us, taught us, and died for us to offer us this living water. So stay thirsty, my friends. So where, where is he offering this? Salvation is offered on the cross. It's by the incarnate grace. He is a man fully of the physical and fully of the spiritual. So wouldn't it make sense that Jesus dying on the cross would thirst fully spiritually and fully of the physical? His death was fully physical and spiritual as well. And it wasn't because he was a victim of human whim. Nobody can touch Jesus, not without his permission. He went there voluntarily on his terms, on his timeline, obsessed. He was purposely going to the cross out of the Father's love. Jesus is offering something different, something better, something eternal. Where is he offering it? He's offering it on the cross. So why did he proclaim, I thirst? We read earlier in today's scripture, it was in parentheses, to fulfill scripture. <clears throat> Again, Jesus was obsessed with Old Testament scripture, and he was obsessed with fulfilling scripture. He was actually embodying scripture, and he embodied the fulfillment of all of scripture in his life and in his death. He was indeed fulfilling scripture by thirsting. So throughout the Bible, there's everything pointing to Christ. There's 330 prophecies. These were all before Christ was born, all pointing to Christ that Jesus fulfilled. And here's a few of these prophecies that he fulfilled. I'll go through these quickly. In Genesis chapter 315, he will crush the head of the spirit. He crushed Satan. In Genesis 12.3, he will be born of the line of Abraham, and he was. Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, he will be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7.14, he will be born a virgin. Isaiah 11.1, he will be called a Nazarene. Psalm 78.2, he will speak in parables. He was, he was, and he did. Psalm 2, verse 7, he will be declared the son of God, and he was. Zechariah, Chapter 11, verse 12, he will be betrayed, and he was. Isaiah 35 and 50, he will be falsely and accused and spat upon. On his way to Calvary, this happened. 
Isaiah 53, 12, he will be crucified with criminals on his right and on his left criminals. Psalm 21, 1, or 22, 1, he will be forsaken by God. And today's message was prophesied in Psalm 69, verse 21, he will be given sour wine to drink. He will thirst, and he did. So as prophesied, Jesus comes into this world, he leads a perfect life, He's falsely accused. He's crucified. So when the soldiers heard him say, I thirst, surely they thought, here's a man nailed to a cross, bleeding and dying in the sun, the middle of the day. Dehydration and thirst must be part of the torture. But little did they know that they were just feeding in. They were an accomplice to Jesus fulfilling one more prophecy in thirsting. Jesus' cry for thirst was spiritual. He knew at that time that his father had exiled him. You see, the father had exiled him because he took our sins in exchange. He became sin for us. Sin is something eternally unwelcome in God's house. Even the smallest of sin, the smallest fib, is not welcome in God's kingdom. It will not enter his house. Jesus was willing to be born into this world of sin and subsequently be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. But dying for our sin wasn't the total picture. He took our sins and exchanged it for his righteousness. It was this exchange, giving us his righteousness and taking his sins, or our sins on his shoulder, that separated him from the Father. Indeed, at this point, the Father had forsaken him. And this separation didn't just affect Jesus, it affected the whole earth. You see, at this time, the earth shook the skies became dark, the curtain tore, the dead arose. It was cataclysmic. Jesus was indeed thirsting for his father, thirsting for that relationship to be restored. So lastly, how do we receive the living water? There's so much going on in the world today. We have the coronavirus, we have social injustice, we have political divide, economic struggles. Have you taken your eyes off the target? Are you chasing the bucket and what's in it? Has your self-worth been coming from the TV? Maybe it's coming from Facebook or Instagram. Maybe your self-worth is coming from Amazon. If so, it's time to look for Christ who is offering life in abundance, not fear. He's not offering guilt. He's not giving a list of do's and don'ts for us. He's giving us a free gift of spiritual and living water. Jesus came into this world of his own, and he went to the cross. He went there to offer his living water to each of us. The reason is beautiful, and it's simple. He loves us, and he wants to take us as his bride. He wants to adopt us as his child. So don't be afraid of that God's love. Embrace it and thirst for it. And on the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the word, the powerful word of Jesus, and we thank you for Jesus himself. We've seen in scripture that Jesus is God sent and God loved, God speaking, Holy Spirit permeated. He's all authoritative and ruler of all creation. And we also see the ruler of creation laying down his life for us, covering us with your living water. So we pray that you'll flood our hearts with your love, pour out your spirit, and give us the strength and the wisdom to thirst for you and to thirst for you alone.